Welcome to episode eight of the Firehouse Forum podcast. I um, I consider every episode of this podcast pretty special, but this edition once again takes Firehouse Forum into new territory. First, all of my guests this week are women, and some incredible women at that. Uh, we have Anne Michelle Forbes, who is one of the stars of Swift Creek Mills Dames at Sea that opened just last weekend, and also Melissa Johnston-Price, who will be appearing in Quill's Romeo and Juliet that opens the first weekend in April. Anne is a relative newbie to Richmond, but is already making quite an impression. Melissa, on the other hand, like me, has been around for quite a while and has plenty to talk about uh, regarding the past, the present, and the future um, of things at Quill. So uh, they'll be on. We also have, uh, we're going to delve into a little bit of a tricky subject, and we'll see how I do with that. Uh, Firehouse is partnering with YWCA Richmond and Safe Harbor to present the hashtag MeToo monologues this Sunday, March 18th at 6 o'clock. This will be an event where people can tell their stories of sexual harassment, coercion, and abuse in a supportive environment as part of increasing awareness and trying to change the culture around sexual misconduct. There will be counselors and staff people from YWCA and Safe Harbor on site, and they will be giving presentations and holding a panel discussion as part of the event. So as part of preparing for that event, I have invited uh, Terry Menefee Gao from CultureWorks, who is going to talk a little bit about her experiences, and Camille Adams, who is a licensed counselor and who will be giving some insight into dealing with uh, the aftermath of harassment and abuse. So that's going to be a bunch of intriguing conversation coming up. Uh, before that, just a couple housekeeping notes. One is that we're doing another class through VCU's Commonwealth Society, and it starts today. It's called Theater Nuts and Bolts, Hands-On and Behind the Scenes. It's going to be an interactive exploration of all things theater, and I have some really fun people coming in to demonstrate st- things like stage makeup and fight choreography and all sorts of other cool things. So you can still sign up and get in for the last four of the five five sessions, or you can think ahead to our next class, which will center around Preludes, which is our next big musical that'll be opening in May. You can find all the information for that at firehouseforum.org. However, before uh, Preludes, we have uh, the show An Oak Tree that opens the first week in Feb. In, I'm sorry, opening the first week in April. This is a really fascinating exploration of art and theater and loss. And I'll be talking to the director, Mark Learman, uh, in our next podcast. So you'll be hearing more about An Oak Tree. But it's not too early to get te- tickets. Uh, the show only runs for two weekends. Uh, I think it's about eight performances. So you might want to get your tickets soon. And you can do that at firehousetheater.org. Okay, on to the show. Okay, we're here with Terry Menefigao. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. And I'm here with Camille Adams as well. Yes, hi. Hi, thanks for coming in. I have to give an extra special thank you to both these guys. We're recording on Monday evening. And if you remember Monday evening when this airs, it's snowing like crazy outside, kind of unexpectedly. So these guys brave the weather. They're here in the very cold dressing room and they're they're brave in so many ways. <laughs> so thank you guys. Um, You're welcome. Just no to problem. give you a little background on who these guys are, Terry works for Culture Works, creating programming opportunities for local arts and cultural organizations. 
She also works extensively on the October VA celebration, uh, which is just for, that, last year was the first time? Nope, it's the second year. Okay. Mm-hmm. So upcoming will be the third year. Yes. Oh, awesome. Uh, she's also a local actor, writer, and minister. Terry has an extensive theater and film resume spanning over 25 years as an actor, even though she's only 29. It's amazing that you've been working so hard since you've been Well, I did old. get started when I was four. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> she was uh, the coordinating manager for the Acts of Faith Festival and... Special congratulations because her screenplay for her screenplay called Always Something There to Remind Me was recently accepted as an official selection at the Portland Comedy Film Festival. Thank you. Congratulations. Yeah, that's Thank really you. cool. Yeah. So uh, Terry's going to tell her, tell us a little bit about her story in a little bit. Um, Camille Adams is a graduate of VCU. She graduated in 1993. She got her master's in counseling psychology from Boston College in 2002, and she worked at the VCU Counseling Center for five years. Mm. She's been in private practice since 2012 uh, at Create Positive Change, LLC, yep. and she provides individual counseling with expertise in trauma. She has also done therapeutic writing classes for Life in 10 Minutes, Bally Haggard's crew mm-hmm. out at uh, Richmond Young Writers. So thank you for coming in. Um, what I, I invite you both in, because we're going to do a little bit of a preview of what's happening this Sunday at... The Firehouse, in cooperation with YWCA Richmond and Safe Harbor, we're doing something called the Me Too Monologues, where people are going to be coming in and telling their stories about sexual harassment or abuse or coercion, and then we're going to have people, therapists and counselors on site to kind of respond and help people uh, work through the stuff that comes up, and also talk about ways we can change the culture as we were just saying, we're changing the culture today. It starts today. It's all going to change, mm-hmm. starting at this very mm-hmm. moment. <laughs> right. So um, I approached you, Terry, because you uh, were one of several women who told some told your story to North of James Magazine. And I just wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about what you talked about to, to the magazine. Um, Charles McGuigan uh, approached me because a few months ago, everybody started with the hashtag MeToo. Alyssa Milano got a hold of it, and it just exploded. And every woman I've ever known has had a MeToo moment. Yeah. Uh, so I put hashtag MeToo. A friend of mine, Mary Carpenter, saw it, and she um, she asked if I would be a part of this. The women who were who spoke with me um, all have experienced. And, and it's recorded in the Northside magazine, North of the James, have recorded sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm fortunate in the fact that I can say that I've never been raped. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have to say that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I shouldn't have to say I've gotten through my life, and gee, that makes me lucky. But I know so many women who have been sexually assaulted, so many women who have been raped. And I I count myself fortunate to not be among those. It does not mean that I have not been harassed. It does not mean that I have not been um, (laughs) tried to be coerced several times. Um, It does not. And and at work and um, working in theater or working in corporate or working Mm -hmm. in the church or working in any of those places, those are, it's every place. Right. Well, and you said something that I thought was really interesting. You talked about microaggressions in a way that I thought, you know, some people, part of it I think is a, 
a backlash kind of thing where people poo-poo microaggressions, but you talked about it in a way that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, microaggressions are real. Mm. And um, what it does is it, it, it very clearly gives you a boundary that you cannot cross. Right. It very clearly says you are not believed. It very clearly says that you now exist in a different space than everybody else does at your office. Yeah. So, um, so say, uh, and, and, and this, and this has happened to me. Um, uh, someone has made a comment about me or about my body or about what I'm wearing. And it's made me feel very, very uncomfortable. And so I've gone to my boss and said, you know, this joke, this action, this thing made me feel uncomfortable. And the boss just says, well, you know, boys will be boys. Right. That's a microaggression. Yeah. It's a microaggression for me to walk down the street and get catcalled. Mm. People consider it very innocent. Um, but really it's a bullying tactic and it's a tactic to say, I claim you, you're mine Mm -hmm. and I can touch you anytime I want to. I can call you out anytime I want to, and you don't have to feel safe in my presence. So when I come back to them and say, why are you doing this? Don't do this to me. It's almost always, Hey, I was giving you a compliment. Yeah. And it's like, Mm -hmm, this is, this is not that this is not a compliment. Even just walking into a restaurant and getting the once over, yeah. an obvious mm-hmm. once over, that's a microaggression. Yeah. And I don't know if the person doing this knows that mm-hmm. or if they were just never corrected right. or if they intentionally do it to claim you, but it is actually a, a way that I am now no longer safe in that space and I'm looking for a way out. Right. Well, and I also, one of the things that I think is really revelatory for people who may not have been aware of it, like me, for instance, is that it makes you move in the world in a fundamentally different way. Correct. Than somebody who hasn't had to deal with that and somebody who hasn't been conditioned to having to deal with that every day, all the time. And what I've discovered with, with, and, and, and I just want to say most men I know, I respect, and have not done this to me. Mm. And those men don't know the space that we live in. Most of them don't. Some of them who have been sexually abused or who have been sexually harassed do know this space. But the the majority of the men that I know, including my husband, didn't know that this was a a real thing and didn't know to look for it um, as you're walking in or as you're, you know. So this has now become an eye-opener and I would really encourage men to continue looking for it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and Camille, I'm wondering if you, since you know Terry was talking about <clears throat> it, really, it's been around for several years in some way, but really in the fall of last year, it kind of took off the mm. Me Too movement. Is is it something where you've seen more people coming to you with these kind of issues or more conversation about it? Uh, I would say before that. Um, uh, Honestly, the 2016 campaign, mm-hmm. the okay. level of acute stress in my practice mm-hmm. was very high for many disenfranchised groups that I was okay. seeing. But from women in particular who grew up with abusive narcissistic parents mm-hmm. or who experienced sexual violence or just harassment, um, they were very, very triggered. Yeah. Unbelievably triggered, and I would say it came from the town hall style debate on yeah. really intensely. And then around October with um, the Me Too hashtag and, and that movement was existing before, sure. and it got further illuminated. Right. 
Um, but Terry, as you were speaking, what I was thinking of is the impact, the physicality of acute stress on the body. Hmm. Even if your sexual harasser never physically touches you, it reminds me of having an older sibling sitting in the back of the car with their finger right an inch <laughs> from your eye saying, I'm not touching you, I'm right. not touching you, I'm not touching you. Right. It is a, a way of saying, this space is mine, not yours. Your right. body is mine, not yours. And the onus of your safety is on you, not the culture's. And what happens is your brain, the mid part of your brain, your limbic system, is responsible for friend, fight, flight, freeze, and play death. That's your basic coping skills in life. It, you don't have to think about those, thank goodness. Yeah. However, part of that limbic system is the amygdala, and it fires, triggering one of those responses. And you release cortisol and adrenaline to have energy in your body to do something. Okay. Those are hormones that stay in your body for a while. It takes a long time to downregulate should you go into fight, flight, um, and that stays for a long time. So if you are in a sexual harassing situation in your workplace, in your school place, at home, your body is in a state of arousal for a long time, yeah. and there are health effects over time. Right. And so to have a culture that says, this doesn't exist, what's wrong with you? Yeah. When it is physically in you. Well, uh, Terry, I see you were shaking your head as, <laughs> oh, as Camille yeah. was talking. Oh, yeah. It makes me think about, you know, you talked about workplaces. Mm -hmm. And if you're dealing with that on a near constant basis, or, you know, if you're being regularly reminded of not being safe, that has to interfere with your concentration, with your ability to focus on work. Of course like it does. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you can never learn in a safe space. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Literally. You can, you can never learn <laughs> in an unsafe space. Right. You can never learn in, or you, you can never be as productive as you can or creative. You know, the, the, the largest enemy of creation and creativity is fear. Mm -hmm. And so you've got... Um, <laughs> For instance, um, I worked at a company that shall not be named um, up in Fairfax, and there was a member of the group who felt it was perfectly fine to come up and massage my shoulders. Mm. Yeah. He was trying to help, and he was trying to be nice, and he knew I was nice, and he was twice my size. Yeah. So I uh. couldn't say anything. I would. It, the coping mechanisms for something like that are... You find friends in the office who understand. You make sure that they're with you. You make sure you're with them when this person is around. Right. And you stick together. It's a hurting mechanism. Mm -hmm. yeah. The same thing happened with the same company, but I was working in the legal area at that time. And there was a lawyer there who, he never touched me, but he did what you did, what you said he did. He looked me over all the time. And at one point I was helping him with a case he was putting together. And he decided he was going to tell me in detail about his friend who was a gynecologist and why mm. he enjoyed being a gynecologist. Mm. And I'm sitting there trying to provide information for this man, and he is scooting closer and closer and closer to me. And, you know, I work in human resources, right? and I can't even get away from it then. Well, you know, you framed, you know, part of your, the way you framed this is that you'd never been raped or assaulted. Correct. I'm curious, and I wonder if you see this, Camille, in some of the stuff that I've read and heard, there's this tension about 
well, it's not really that bad, I guess, but it didn't, it wasn't good, but it wasn't the worst it could be. And having to navigate that mm. tension of like, I felt really bad, but yet there's these people who, who have suffered so much worse. I mm. mean, it, it just is, there's almost a delegitimatizing of your experience. As, as women, I've been, as a, as a female of my age, I've been taught to do that yeah. to a certain degree. I've been taught to consider other people before myself. Right. And I'm just wondering if part of that's part of your process is mm-hmm. to kind of legitimize people in there mm-hmm. in the way that they're Oh, responding. absolutely. I mean, sometimes I'll say a little jokingly, like, we all need a big cup full of denial to get through the day because <laughs> if we really took in <laughs> right. what was going on, none of us would make it. <laughs> right. However, I will say, you are my client. You're here, and what you've been through is what you've been through. Mm-hmm. And I could go into a very long-winded story about, you know, there are parts of us that are holding the trauma, and they live in trauma time. Right. And then there's the part of us that gets on with normal life, that had to go to school and get a job and put on clean clothes and do all that. And right. they don't always get along. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and part of a healing process is... Uh, getting them to communicate. (laughs) But when we think about moving on, uh, not moving on, that isn't what I want to say. When we think about creating safety, safety starts from the body out. Hmm. And so we got to learn how to downregulate and stay present and be able to do that. We need to learn what is the best coping strategy Hmm. and how to connect with safe people um, and then we start to change the culture. But any time you're going to move forward and have those kind of conversations, people are going to say, eh, you know, it right. was just a little bit harassment. It was just harassment late. It wasn't <laughs> right. quite rape. Yeah. You know, and when we say it that way, it sounds ridiculous. Right. Absolutely ridiculous. But we, we live in a culture that men are raised to be tough and to delegitimize their own feelings. So, of course, they're going to feel the need to delegitimize ours. People, right. And I have not experienced anything of related to what the people I've been reading about have experienced. Um, so I'm kind of an observer from outside. Is One of the things that just has kind of floored me is that I see such accomplished people. I mean, Terry, you've done like such amazing things and, you know, been involved in so many different things and, you know, you're accomplished on stage and in, you know, in work life, but that doesn't stop this kind of thing from happening. Nobody's like free from it. Here's the thing. No place on earth is safe. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and, and women know this probably at a a heightened level than men do in our culture. Mm. What makes a place safe is the intention of the people who are in that space. Mm. There is no safe place for a woman in our culture. But if there are people who are there intentionally to provide and be that safe herd for them and to be that safe, it helps create a modicum of safety, a place where I can go. I always always think back to, there was a video I saw a number of years ago, um, a woman who was wearing traditional Muslim dress was on uh, the metro, and some young white men were harassing her. And another woman who was white went and stood with her just to provide one level of safety more than what she had. To me, that's what I'm kind of asking everybody to do. And when I walk into a room, I'm looking to be that. I don't know how to explain how I continue to go on or go into a place with hope, but I do. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's my extrovertism. I don't know if it was the way I was raised. 
I don't know any of that. I know that my dad taught me to not let anybody get in my way and to not let the idiots get me down. (laughs) Um, He taught me to fight back. My dad's a really complicated man. But if there's one thing he taught me, he he taught me self-value. And to say, if, if they did this, and I questioned it a lot, you know, what was I wearing? What was I doing? Did I put myself in a bad situation? And then ultimately I come to the point where no, you know what? It's not my fault. He put his hands on me. Right. It's not. That's his choice. And it's it's my option to fight back. Hmm. Well, I feel like that's a really good place to end. Though oh, I... come on. She's got more to say. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to add more, Camille, before we wrap this up? Uh, Terry, I think what you're talking about is uh, resiliency. Resiliency. Right. And even if there aren't safe spaces, we are able to tap into... Uh, even a post-traumatic growth. Mm. And uh, I like that you acknowledge um, there are intersections of identity that can be more vulnerable. Mm. And that's an important place to acknowledge that if there are other communities that are being disenfranchised, sex is used as a weapon. It's not sexy sex. Right. <laughs> it's, you know, harassment and abuse. Um, and But people can and do have an arc of growth right. with the right support with the right community um, and care. And that is out there. There, It can be accessed. Um, so, um. Well, and that is, now you've given me even a better place to end, which is that's part of what we're trying to do on Sunday and introduce people who are looking for support and a place to feel safe and feel like they can, you know, share what they've been through and get help moving forward. So thank you both for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. All right, take care. We are here with Anne Michelle Forbes. Hi, Anne. Hi. Thanks for coming in. Thanks. Uh, (laughs) I first spoke to Anne back in the spring of 2016 when she was appearing in 4,000 Miles at Cadence Theater Company. And she was still a student at VCU, but she was already a regular in the theater community. She had been in there playing our song at Virginia Rep in 2014 with Landon Nagel, who was in our last podcast. And she had been in 42nd Street at Dogwood Dell. And then she went on from that to be in John at Cadence Theater Company. And then you toured with Virginia Rep with uh, the song of Mulan. So you've been very busy. Yeah. <laughs> you, then, you went uh, last summer, you were in Alice, a new musical in a co-production with Theater Lab and Firehouse. And you just opened in Dames of Sea, or Dames at Sea. I can't get my articles right. <laughs> Dames at sea at Swift Creek Mill. Yeah. So you've just been going full stop the whole time. Like, yeah, yeah. With a full-time <laughs> with a, job. So. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of juggling. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> so Dames at Sea was, it first premiered in 1966. So I'm going to ask you a question that's kind of maybe out of left field. You know, there's all this conversation at this particular moment about doing like new shows or doing particularly relevant shows or like, or political shows. And why is Dames at Sea a good show to do now in, in your perspective? I think it's a good show to do because it's, it's paying an homage back to all of those 1930s, like just really extravagant and over the top movie musicals right, and okay. all of the Fred and Ginger stuff and, and singing in the rain and all of those types of things. And I feel yeah, a lot of those shows aren't really being done at the moment. I feel like right. anything goes is like coming back into coming back into style now right, yeah. in the last few years. But 
Yeah, it's, it's just paying homage back to an era, and I, it doesn't make a big political message or anything, but I think it's just a really feel-good show for people that specifically like grew up in that generation. Right. I know my dad came just slightly after that, um, and I think that he's going to have like a really great time seeing the show just for yeah. memory's sake. Right. Yeah, and I know that the I know that the clientele of <laughs> Swift Creek Mill, I think there's a lot of people that, that love going to shows there kind of for... Reminiscing, yeah. yeah, and feel good stuff. Well, and it's also, I mean, from what I remember seeing it, it's a little, it's kind of a little bit making fun of like the old 1930s musicals, but also paying homage and like being true to them yeah. at the same time. Yeah, it's definitely, it's it's a little spoofy and it's a little yeah. parody-like. And I, I keep saying it's like if anything goes in 42nd Street, like had a child. <laughs> um, and I've done both of those shows before, like back in high school or at the Dogwood Dell. And so mm. it's been fun kind of mashing up all the elements of all of them. Right. Um, but yeah, Tom keeps reminding us, Tom with our director, keeps reminding us that yeah, it is exaggerated circumstances. And right. yeah, there's some moments that we're just like totally poking fun in it. But I think finding yourself in the characters and finding the realism is kind of the the key. Right. Because there are some really honest moments. And I think he didn't want them to get lost in the mix of all the, oh, sure. of yeah. the craziness. Well, because there's all sorts of <laughs> crazy love stories going on. And, yeah. yeah so. Very abrupt ones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like right. I've been I've been cracking up laughing because I think it was just the other week we realized that the whole show transpires over the course of a day. Oh wow, yeah. And I'm married huh. by the end of it. <laughs> and so like just like life. Yeah. Like I meet a guy <laughs> and then I'm I'm married to him by the end of the day. And yeah. so you know, those are the kind of elements that are a little like a little out there, extreme, right? And like, as far as like character development, you can't get too like heady about it because <laughs> right. a lot, a lot goes on over the course of fifteen hours. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned doing shows in high school, and you know, obviously very busy in college. How did you start? How did you first get the acting bug, or you know, start on this? trail i started off um running like the sound and light board really? in high school you're a tech geek i a little bit yeah awesome. i mean i i don't know how good i was at it but <laughs> but i definitely i just wanted to be part of it and um my high school program was was rather competitive and my um the music director and the director of the shows they they just had like really really strong visions in okay. mind and sometimes they did smaller shows and not everyone could get in so if you wanted to be part of the theater community you just like stuck yourself wherever you could be. Um, and it wasn't until my junior year of high school, I played Sally Brown and you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Okay. <laughs> and I was like ready to go to culinary school, like so excited about it, had already scoped out colleges. And then I got that first lead and I was like, this well, is, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> like, wow. I guess this is the thing. And my parents were just totally on board. They had bought me like hundreds of dollars of culinary equipment and then I immediately made a switch and they were just like well okay <laughs> <laughs> well that's nice nicer parents than yeah. I would be probably <laughs> <laughs> for sure yeah. yeah so now do you still cook are you still interested in that I do mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. yeah you gotta you gotta cook to live so I find myself doing it every day <laughs> okay. um yeah and I'm I'm like a full-time nanny um during the day each right. day so I cook for them, just like grilled cheese and stuff. Nothing yeah. like extravagant, but um, yeah, I still I still do a lot of cooking, and I've still I've given thought to having that be like a full time job or a day job or something, sure. being yeah. like a line cook somewhere. But we'll see. Okay, I don't know. World's my oyster. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could be good for the uh, you know the real chefs or one of those real reality programs as well. I think my mom is like holding out hope that I'll have my own cooking show sometime because that kind of will have like it's like. 
personality and like I could make it really like funny and acty, yeah, but then absolutely. also like it's cooking too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, also I'd I'd watch. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> uh, well, from your resume, I see that I don't I don't know if you still do this, but you're a princess performer at Dream Entertainers. Is this something you still do? Yep, real. So, what is that gig like? So I go to children's birthday parties mm-hmm. as dressed up as different Disney princesses, mm-hmm. and um, we kind of have like a format that we adhere to, and we. We either do like meet and greets or we'll host like an entire hour long party. And then we also have like add ons, like we as princesses dressed in our clothing can like paint faces and like do glitter tattoos and all kinds of stuff. And that, that kind of thing will last like two hours. Um, but yeah, parents basically just call our company to have a Disney princess come out and. And host their party for them, kind of take the load off of them. And so do you have kids saying, are you the real Mulan? All (laughs) the time. Well, and yeah, so I mostly play Moana, which Uh just came out January 2017. So she's really gained popularity in the last year. But I've also done, uh, in in my less tan times of the year. I've done Snow White. Um, and I've done Anna from Frozen. And I've done Jasmine. Um, I've never done Mulan. We actually don't offer that oh, character. Really? Not oh. enough people have like asked for it, but I got enough of my fill of Mulan for four months. So okay. I'm, I'm okay. Um, but yeah, Moana is definitely like my favorite, but I've seen the movie especially because I'm a nanny, probably like over <laughs> 40 times. times. Oh, yeah. So I know the answers to like anything wow. that they may ask. Now, do you um, ever have the other other reaction, though, that, like, you're not the real Moana? Oh, it? yeah. It's always, like, there's always, like, a five-year-old sister whose birthday party it actually is, and okay. then, like, a bratty nine-year-old brother that's like, <laughs> that's a wig. You need to take uh, it right. off. Uh, and I'm like, okay, but, like, let your sister have the magic. <laughs> like, it's still really fun for her. So, yeah, but I just try to, you definitely have to do some, like, crisis control <laughs> in those situations because everything could, like, tumble down in seconds right. but well, for the most part too, i would think right? yeah there's lots of improv and i do like sing the princess's music and all kinds of stuff but those are really fun those usually happen on like weekends so like weekends during the day okay so they don't really happen so much when i'm like doing shows it's a little bit too difficult right. to get into the whole get up and then get out of it and then go do a show oh, in the sure. evening so yeah. Yeah. well so you graduated from vcu in 2016 yeah and you've been working seemingly consistently, do you ever think about moving on to a bigger market or exploring your, you know, chances other places? There's some, there's some cool things in the future. I think I'm, I think I'm trying not to like jinx anything or like, or like put a timeline on it, but I've, I've had my sights set on DC for a little bit. Okay. Um, Well, did you grow up there? Is that where you're from? I, yeah, I'm from around like Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. Yeah. And, um, that's where I went to most of my like public schooling. And then I moved down here to Richmond in 2012 for, for college. Okay. Cause a lot of like the programs in Maryland, a lot of them are open enrollment as far as theater is concerned. And I just noticed even if you move just one state down, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot more rigor to the college programs down here. I just okay. needed to like have a smaller class size and not have like <laughs> any Joe be able to take acting class right. <laughs> with me. But, um, but yeah, it's been, yeah, R- Richmond has proven to be like a really good move on my end. And there's mm-hmm. definitely a lot more going on here than where I grew up okay. theater wise. So, But you're thinking about maybe migrating northward? I think so. Yeah. 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 Maybe getting some, I'm really interested in getting maybe some representation for commercial work and voiceover stuff. Okay. And then also obviously doing 
plays and right. <laughs> and musicals up there too. Okay. But yeah, so we'll see. I don't know. Maybe maybe 2019. Maybe not. All right. I'm just not really. I'm not really rushing it because I'm still working down here, and yeah. I feel like why why leave a place that you're you're working? You're in? busy. And yeah. Happy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I've well, I've got a really good day job that I love and don't want to leave. So well, that's great. Yeah. It's all. I always feel torn because when good people and good actors are pursuing other projects, other places. It's like, <laughs> but but we want you here to stay in Richmond. We like you. So, but yeah. you know, but you know, we wish you good luck and you'll come back, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think it wouldn't take much convincing. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, when we talked in 2016, uh, it was during, there was a couple shows that had premiered with big Asian American, with parts with Asian American actors in them. Mm -hmm. And that was two years ago. And we were talking about how, you know, in general, Asian Americans were underrepresented. Mm -hmm. It's two years since. I don't know that it's necessarily changed a whole lot, but, you know, you being cast in Dames is, I would guess, kind of a testament to more colorblind or more the person who's best for the part gets cast. Yeah. Do you notice any differences or do you feel any differences? How has your perspective on that changed at all? I've definitely, I've definitely gone into a lot of auditions lately feeling like I can get cast, mm -hmm. which is just a really cool feeling. And yeah. I, I haven't always felt that way. But yeah, with Dames at Sea, it's been interesting because when I first saw the casting, you know, like the audition notice, mm -hmm. I, there wasn't any reason why... I thought I might be in it <laughs> necessarily, okay. you know, right. like, um, no one that's ever played the role has, has looked like me. Okay. And, and are you in the Bernadette Peters role? I'm not yes. sure. You're the yeah, Bernadette I'm Peters playing, character. Yeah, I'm okay. playing Ruby. And so, and then Eloise Crop just played it in that recent Broadway revival that just happened. And okay. yeah. And so, um, you know, all of them have been Caucasian and or like blonde. Right. And <laughs> so I went in and I was just kind of like, I love tap shows. I'd yeah. love to do this. I didn't know exactly where I fit in in the mix. And yeah, so that's that's just been really cool. And I think especially when you are a person of color or a minority going into that sort of situation, you feel like you have to work like that mm. much harder to change the director's mind. Okay. Like, because they may go into something thinking that they want someone that looks a specific way or right. appears a certain way. And, and with, well, and with this role with Bernadette Peters being like the iconic yeah. person. And it yeah. was, it was her breakout role. She got it at 20 years old. It mm. was the thing that like put her on the map. So the stress was high. <laughs> I was like, oh man, am I that? Um, <laughs> and so it was just, it was, I don't know, there was just a really cool feeling when I did end up getting the offer because I it really did feel like it was it was like the best person for the role, more talent based than than what I appear to be or maybe what my type is, which mm -hmm. I still haven't really boxed myself into anything quite yet because right. I'm just like I'm 23 and <laughs> I think my resume is kind of all over the place as of now just because yeah. I I'm just dipping my toes everywhere and I just like I like to be flexible and and that sort of thing so but it was it was really really cool and I I think that Tom did a really cool thing by by doing that and being right. so flexible with the casting and and that sort of thing so well and yeah. I mean the knowing the character a little bit it's a uh you know, fresh-faced, kind of naive person who ends up in New York. And yeah. you totally pull that off. Yeah. <laughs> so that much I understand. Right. Yeah, being like very like young and like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> I definitely relate to that feeling. And she's like the role Ruby. She's just so much like a cartoon character. Like I just really? think I have to like think that way or kind of think of it being like an episodic cartoon kind of show okay. to kind of 
motivated. Right. <laughs> yeah, because it because it all like I said like it all happened so fast and there's not really like a like a, a strong through line connecting the scenes. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, it kind of feels like a little like cartoon. Right. Is that more <laughs> or less of a challenge than like you know John or Four Thousand Miles where it's it's more intense. It's definitely way different. Yeah. I mean, yeah, with John, I think that was the most like hyper realistic show I've ever done. I mean, yeah. it just felt, and I don't know, like as an audience member, but a lot of people have told me that it felt very like immersive. You were in the same room with them, maybe sitting on the couch with them. Right. And so it, it is very different. You know, I, I really just spoke in my own register. I really just talked like Anne would, like there was just so much Anne infused okay. in Jenny in that show. And this is like, <laughs> this is like Anne with a lot of caffeine, <laughs> like Ruby is. So I find that I'm really like amping up the, you know, like the energy and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's, I don't, I wouldn't say it's harder, but it's, it's just different. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm definitely acting a lot. Like, I think I aged myself for some of like the, the more like edgy straight plays that I did. And okay. I'm just letting myself be like as young as possible for this one. <laughs> so Yeah. Well, I like Anne without a whole lot of caffeine. I, I expect <laughs> I'd like her with a lot of caffeine as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. And Dames opens. Actually, by the time this airs, Dames will have just opened. March so, 10th. Yeah. Uh, break a leg. I hope it goes well. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks. Thanks. We're here with Melissa Johnston Price. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Dave. <laughs> We're on the road again. The podcast is in Melissa Johnston Price's and Roger Price's home studio, Whisper Studios. Um, so thank you for opening your doors and studio to me. Oh, absolutely no problem. Love to have you. <laughs> well, great. Thanks. Okay, I'm not going to leave then. I'm just going to okay. stick around. Um, so we're here to talk to Melissa about many things, but most specifically about... Uh, Romeo and Juliet, which is coming up, yeah. and you are playing the nurse. I'm playing the nurse. Okay, I don't. I can't remember which nurse this is. Is this a bigger nurse part or a smaller nurse part? She's Juliet's nurse. Okay, so that's a pretty big nurse it, part. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's pretty big. I, you know, how do you define big? How do you define right. a big role? I mean, there it's not no Romeo or it's not Juliet. So yes. you know, then I, you know, it's a supporting role, um, and I'm there as. I have been with Juliet since the day she was born. Right. And I'm her cheerleader. I'm her wet nurse. I am her sometimes mother. Right. Um, she's my pride and joy. And I would do anything for her. Right. So you're going to be all wrapped up in tragedy, by I mean, not to ruin anything for anybody. But, right, as you know. if anybody doesn't know <laughs> yeah, the right. story of Romeo. Yeah. Although we were talking about that last night in rehearsal, that yeah. there are some people who don't know this story. Really? I know, well, so you know, <laughs> I think about it. I'm, yeah. You know, um, I, I do have some friends who want to come see the show, but one of them said, now, am I going to be able to understand it? It's <laughs> like, oh... Yes, yeah. I really do. What I what I tell people most of the time is it just give yourself some patience. You right. know, just just be patient with it. And yep. that that first scene, you're probably going to be, oh, what the, what's, what's happening? Yeah. yeah, what's going on? And then and then the language begins to just it it starts out sounding like a foreign language right. to most people, but then your ear just compensates, and right. then all of a sudden the story is there, and you get in with the characters, and you know if you just relax with it, then, right. yeah, you understand it. Right? Well, and, and Quill casts such good people. I mean, the actors bring so much 
to it. We and try. Make it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I I would say that they do a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we had some awesome actors auditioning this year. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We had um, amazing, amazing actors. So if anybody is listening out there who auditioned for the show and didn't get cast, right. it was a tough choice. Yeah. So. Well, you got some, yeah, very interesting new younger actors. Yep. So yep. that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So. Got some people from Mary Baldwin, mm-hmm. um, the MFA program there, who are um, Lord Montague and Tybalt. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Got some great, great people. Awesome. Great new people. Well, I got to back up a little bit because I didn't even introduce you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if nobody knows who Melissa Johnston Price is, <laughs> she's been in, involved in Richmond Theater for over 35 years, going way back. She was yeah. the founding uh, managing director of Richmond Theater Company. Yes. This was 35 years ago? Really? <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. So we're, we're not really going to say how <laughs> okay. long ago that was. Um, but that in was a year, long time ago. Yeah. In yeah. the years <laughs> since, she has been voted Style Weekly's favorite actress for three years. Years. She's been nominated four times as Best Actress in both Supporting and Leading Roles for um, RTCC Awards, and she won for her role in August Osage County back in 2012. Oh, right? no. Is nope. that 2012? I really? So. Yeah. That was six years ago? <sighs> oh, I know. I love that role. <laughs> she was also the... 2014 recipient of the Teresa Pollock Award for Excellence in the Arts. I've been lucky. So, uh, you, well, you're good. That's what it <laughs> well, comes down thank to. You. I'm uh, <laughs> one of the things that I couldn't remember is whether you'd been in Romeo and Juliet before. No, no, no. Okay. I haven't. This is this is actually one that was on my bucket list. Oh, all right. Yeah, I, I was one of those kids that was greatly affected by Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, the oh, film. Oh, man. See, that's, the, that's why I think everybody should know should Romeo know and Juliet. Should know Romeo and Juliet, Doesn't right? everybody still watch Zeffirelli in high school? Uh, I guess not. I, I don't know. I have I have absolutely... I, I would love it if that is true, right. if they do still do that. Yeah. Because it, it is the quintessential Romeo and Juliet. And even mm. to Jan Powell... <laughs> who you know is knows everything about Shakespeare? Right. Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet is also the quintessential right. Romeo and Juliet to her. So it, it, it's always been on my bucket list. I was greatly affected by it when I first saw it. That's what drew me initially to Shakespeare, and you know, and all of that thing. And and I I still I still love it. And I'm in rehearsals, and I can recite. <laughs> Everybody's right. lines with them. So, so you're going to push Liz out of the way at some point and say, Right. Well, speaking of Shakespeare, I first met you, I'm pretty sure, when you were Gertrude in Hamlet, not very recently, <laughs> many years ago. Yeah, that was uh, Gary Hopper and David Bridgewater who yeah. put that one together. And that was in Theater Gym. Right. Yeah. I think that was in the late 80s. I, yeah, I, I couldn't even think of where. I, and I yeah. tried to look it up on the internet and it's like pre-internet. So it's like, yeah. it was Wait. a while back. Yeah. yeah I, the, the thing of it is when we talk about it, I can't remember whether it was, I'm pretty sure it was pre-children. Mm-hmm. So that means it has to be before 1990, yeah. I think. Wow. So, yeah. Well, yeah. And Holly played My Lady Waiting. I know. Yeah. That was so sweet. That was, I mean, and BJ Cosen was in that yes. production. There was a yes. lot of really great people. Mm-hmm. But it made me think of, you know, Gertrude is a pretty, you know, emblematic That's a, role. That's a pretty big role. And yeah. you did that 25 years ago. Yeah. Uh-huh. Are there other roles 
when you think of male roles, there's the Willie Lomans, there's the King Lears, the big, you know, the ones that every actor eventually wants to do. Right. Are there still those on your bucket list? That Shakespeare specifically or just, just in general? Just in general. Um, I have I have two. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go back and do August Osage again. Oh, okay. But this time I want to play the mama. Oh, all right. Yeah. And, and would Katie then age up into right, okay. right. Katie yeah. McCall played your right. daughter, she, right? Or no, no sister. Sister, okay. Right, okay. yeah. Katie and um, Greg Garrett and okay. I were the three sisters. Uh, right. okay. Yeah. And Jody Strickler played my aunt, which was just crazy. But anyway, <laughs> you know, I would, I would like to age up and eventually play the mama. Okay. And then I did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf mm. way, 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 way back then. Okay. And I was too young for it at the time. I hadn't had children yet didn't really understand yeah. it. I mean, I did, but I hadn't had those life experiences yet yeah. to really, really know what that character was going through. Right. So I, I yeah, I, I'd like to play her again as well. well yeah, and those, those seems like, those seem like roles that you can just, you can't live enough to live all that you need to live for those roles. <laughs> That's very true. And I mean, you know, and, and if I ever get the chance to play the mama in, in August of Sage, I mean, you know, she's a drug addict. So right. I, <laughs> <laughs> May I not have to know those life experiences, right. but yeah. <laughs> wow. You have played so many roles over the years. Uh, and as I was going through your resume, I noticed that there are some that are more politically oriented or have like female empowerment right. um, aspects to them, which I think is awesome. Particularly like when you were in Liz Estrada at Quill last year, which had the great you and Michael Hawk together in another role, you know, just a great uh, relationship there. Your body awareness and regrets only at Triangle Players. And I'm just curious, do those roles, are those more attractive to you? Do you seek out those roles or is that just something that's a nice add-on or is that just not, you just look for a meaty role regardless of whether it has political implications or, you know, gender, politic Stuff or yeah, anything. I don't. Well, I, I don't mean to disappoint, but I, I don't think that I seek them out. Actually, mm. I, to tell you the honest to goodness truth, I think sometimes they seek me out because mm. I, I just, I, I think I, I, I think I give off that persona. Mm. I think okay. uh, you know, I, I, in in video and film, when I was doing a lot of that kind of thing, um, I played the power woman. I played mm. the, the 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 mama in charge. I right. played the you know. So I think. That those roles come easy to me, okay, and maybe I audition better because mm-hmm. of it. Sure, and that's one interesting thing about the nurse is that she's not any of those things. Okay. So I'm, I'm having a great time trying to figure out this lady and who she is and how okay. she fits into that world because she is a servant, right? First so and foremost, dial, do you have to dial things back I a little have bit? To dial things back a yeah. little bit, you know. Yeah, and I don't have to, you know. I have to make sure Lady Capulet is is the lady of the house. Right. So, okay. Yeah. So it's been kind of interesting for me. But I no, I think to answer your question, I just, I yes, I think I seek them out, but I think they also yeah they, they look for they, you. Yeah, they just come to me kind of easily. Well, and and the way things work in Richmond, I think you know people. There's auditions for some roles, but there's also a lot of roles that are just kind of offered to people because you know they're they're 
choosing the play because they have these people in mind. Right. Are there roles that you turn down when people approach you about certain things that you've even... No. <laughs> <laughs> a role comes my way. I'm going to do whatever yeah. I can to get it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, if it fits in with my schedule, right. I have had to turn down some things. Yeah. Well, and so, uh, yeah, another thing that I wanted to ask you about is, so you are your kind of day job. I mean, you're a voiceover talent. You're a very busy actress. <laughs> yeah. But you also are the operations manager for Quill. Yes. So <laughs> <laughs> I am. <laughs> so what, so one for people who don't know, hopefully, I mean, I think there's a lot of theater insider folks who will know what that is. Who would get right. But yeah. for people who aren't, what does that entail? What, is, what does your job entail? Well, you know, I don't know what other operations managers do, but I can tell you what I do because okay. it sort of fits my skill sets. I'm sort of the logistics person. Right. I, okay. I think in details. I think in images. Mm-hmm. So when someone has an idea, I immediately go to, okay, what does that look like and how can we make that work? Okay. And I think through all the steps, I can go from A to like H. <laughs> Not all the way to Z, no, but okay. from A to like H okay. in, you know, in during the time that they're presenting this idea. And right. you know, and I can say, okay, here's a roadblock. Here's here's something we need to watch out for here you know whatever yeah I used to say that I you know I don't just see the leaves on the trees I see the veins on the leaves <laughs> of the trees I'm right. that I'm that much detail oriented okay. and when I was with Richmond Theater Company which became Richmond Theater Company for Children mm-hmm. um, I was doing that job too and <laughs> I was doing. All of the bookkeeping uh-huh. by hand. Oh, those were the days. Huh? Yes, this is pre-computer. So yeah. I'd have my, oh, if I didn't have a sharpened pencil in my hand, my day was ruined. <laughs> Just trying to enter in all of, you know, all of the bookkeeping numbers, payroll, payroll. I mean, it taxes everything. Yeah. So it was kind of easy for me to step into the operations manager position. Uh, this time by computer. Right. And so I also do all the contracts and the negotiating and you okay. know and, and stuff like that. But with Quill, we're, we're such a small gypsy organization that right. I get my hands wet and everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's so many artistic decisions that need to be made and so many, so many things that have to be done that we all look at each other and say, are you available? <laughs> right. And, it, you know, whoever raises their hand first is yeah. the person. Who <laughs> you're the lucky one. You're right. the lucky right. one. Yes. That's why you make every meeting, because if you're not there, you're assigned everything, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> well, and so Quill has so much going on right now, too. So yeah. there's Romeo and Juliet is gearing up and that opens in April, first yes. week in April. Mm-hmm. But before that, you've got Making Noise, which is a suffragette-oriented piece that's right. going to be at the Virginia Museum Muse- of History and Culture. That's right. I'm glad you got it because <laughs> I, I forget. It's still the Virginia History Museum in my mind, but nope, no, not anymore. No, Virginia Historical uh, Society. That's right. what, yeah, that's what it used to be. Right. right. So they're doing, you're doing that there on March right. 24th. Right. And then you're doing something called Under the Veil. Right. Which is opening April 6th, or it's a one-day thing, right? It's a one-day thing, okay. right. Yeah. And where's that going to be? That will be at Chimborazo Park okay. as part of the Emancipation Day festivities that the Civil War Museum puts on every year. Okay. Um, we so, actually took the suffragette piece there last year for that. Oh, okay. This year it's Under the Veil. Under the Veil, let me back up a little bit. <laughs> Joseph Bromfield and... And Lauren Ellens are writing this piece. Lauren, who was just in Wings at Firehouse, I have to say. There you go. <laughs> All right. And it, this is about Elizabeth Van Loo, 
and an African-American woman named Mary Bowser. Hmm. Okay. During the Civil War, Elizabeth Van Loo lived here, and she became a spy for the North. And the African-American Mary Bowser became a slave in the Confederate White House. Wow. And helped Elizabeth. Okay. Like her Fascinating kind of, story. Yeah. There's actually, if you talk with some historians, some will sort of look askance at you and say, well, Mary Bowser may or may not have existed. Oh, okay. yeah. But, you know, not a whole lot of records from that time. Sure. So they do know that Elizabeth Van Lu existed. So that's the, the, the telling of their story or the beginning of it. Um, we hope to put the full story into our historical reading series next season. Okay. And this is just a little snippet of it to what everybody's appetite. All right. Yeah. And to put in. But so that's that's two other things that as operations manager, you are also like working on operations for uh-huh. as you're rehearsing uh-huh. for Romeo and Juliet. Uh-huh. So are are you are we sleeping these days? <laughs> What's going on with that? Well, as I told you before the, before we started recording, I had the flu last month. Uh, um yes, I am. It it's great. I you know, it, everybody pitches in, everybody is doing their jobs. Everybody, you know, if if I wasn't doing this, I'd be so miserable. <laughs> you know, right. my husband and I talk about, oh, when are we going to retire, blah, 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 blah. And he, the first thing he said was, you are never going to retire. <laughs> right. You, I do. I get bored very, very easily. Yeah. So this is, this is great. This mm. is great for me. Cool. So part of the reason I think you get these roles that are strong women or female empowerment roles is you have a very commanding voice. You have a good, solid, well-rehearsed voice. That sounds very Um, nasally right now. (laughs) But I'm curious. So you're, you know, a professional voice over talent. Right. So how do you, do you approach voiceover work differently than onstage work or do they overlap or how do they feed into each other? Or Well, voiceover the... work normally is very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, we have begun to do a lot of phone voice prompts okay. uh, as part of our work here. And I just got to make sure that my voice is in good working order and, I'm doing exactly what the client tells me to do with that phone voice prompt, whether they wanted a business tone or a friendly tone or enthusiastic tone, or sometimes we're told to do it in a military tone. It Hmm. just depends upon who the client is. Um, Before, when we used to do a lot of uh, the video and film and narration work, yeah, I think that there is some prep. Um, The same with acting, but you just don't get the rehearsal process in in voiceover work yeah. that you do with theater. You just get a script. And yeah, and the process is what I love. I, <laughs> I, I just, I love the camaraderie and the, I mean, that's, uh, that's my going to church, is going to a <laughs> rehearsal. I hope that's not, that, that, I hope that doesn't offend anybody. Please, I didn't intend for that too, but yeah. Yeah. So. Well, that's cool. Yeah, a little <clears> different. So what, I, I recognize your voice when I hear it. Where will other people recognize your voice from? Um, if they call 1-800-FED-INFO, okay. that will be my voice. All right. Some prompts of the Social Security Administration, the American Cancer Society. Wow. We used to say that my voice is, could be on like a thousand different phones you know, any, any 800 you number you dial, you know. Melissa, I just talked to you. Yeah, right, on? right. I know. And Jerry Williams used to do that. Oh, yeah. He would text me and say, I just talked with you. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. great. 
Right. SunTrust. SunTrust Bank. I think that's the one that that I'm on to. Well, well, we are very much looking forward to seeing you in Romeo and Juliet. Thank you. I Um, hope everybody will come. Yeah. At the VMFA. Oh, that's right. Yes. VMFA opening April 5th. Can I plug it? Oh, absolutely. Um, And one thing that's new this year is that Amuse, which is normally closed on Saturday nights, Mm -hmm. the restaurant, will be open on Saturday nights this year. Yeah. And and we'll be serving dinner for anybody who wants to make a reservation. That's awesome. Well, yeah. and it's a tragically underused stage, so it's one of the few opportunities to go out and see the Leslie Cheek Leslie Cheek Theater. Cheek yes, Theater mm-hmm. and inside the Virginia Museum. Yeah, it's right. a beautiful space, and yeah. I'm sure it'll be a great job. Hope so. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Right, bye. <laughs> All right. Well, that was episode eight of Firehouse Forum podcast. I would like to thank uh, very much Terry Menifigao and Camille Adams, who came in to talk about the Me Too monologues that will be uh, happening here at Firehouse on March 18th, Sunday at 6 p.m. Also, many thanks to Anne Michelle Forbes, who's in Dames at Sea out at Swift Creek Mill. And, of course, Melissa Johnston-Price. She's going to be in Romeo and Juliet the first week of April. But as we discussed, there's a couple other things that Quill is doing before then. So you can go to quilltheater, with an R-E, dot org, and uh, see more information about that. We will be back with the Firehouse Forum podcast in two weeks. We'll see you then.